Ain't you gonna press the flesh, Pappy? Do a little politicking? I'll press your flesh, you impudent son bitch. You don't tell your Pappy how to cut the electorate. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. Oh, yeah. That's a powerful new force. Mm -hmm. Take a leg, Junior. It's the end of the world as we know it. I feel fine. That's great, it starts with an earthquake. Birds, snakes, and airplanes. Yeah, Lenny Bruce is not afraid. I am a hurricane, listen to yourself. Turn world to its own needs. Dummy, save your own needs. Speed it up and not speak. Got no speed. The ladder starts to clatter with the fear. Fight down like fire in a fire. Represent the southern gang from the government for hire in a combat site. Lester wasn't coming in a hurry with the fury. Bring it down your neck. Team of team reporters got the Trump to the ground. Look at that low plane. Fire and then Hey, welcome to the Pirate Professor Podcast. That is one of my favorite bands playing one of my favorite songs. Um, it's an old R.E.M. Uh, everybody knows it's an old R.E.M. song. Uh, but that was a uh, cover by Great Big C, which a lot of people from the United States have never heard of Great Big C, but uh, I don't know if they're still around or not. They were super popular in Canada for a long time. So if you like kind of fun, happy Irish type music it's all good like pub music they're a good band to watch um hey so welcome and here we are for yet another um unsolicited episode of this podcast um i'm recording it it's um it's sunday evening it's late i got i'm down at the cabin my cabin uh for those who don't know um, the cabin's actually a pretty good kind of lead into this sort of thing, sort of the power of mass communication. 
So I live in this, so I split my time between, I have this log cabin that I built and I have a sailboat. And so I'm either, I'm at, I'm at one place or the other. Um, when I'm teaching, I'm at the cabin for the majority of time because the boat is about 12 hours away from the school I teach at, which, you know, makes commuting problematic. But I don't want to talk about the boat today. Let's talk about the cabin. Um, so this cabin I built, uh, I guess it was a little over 10 years ago that I started on this thing. Uh, I built it from scratch. I logged the uh, trees out of the National Forest. Uh, I got a salvage permit from the, the Forest Service because uh, the tornado had come through and knocked down a bunch of these kind of uh, old, very mature pine trees. So these are big honking pine trees that got knocked down. Uh, so I got a salvage permit, which didn't really cost much of anything. And uh, I just took a tractor up and a chainsaw up in the National Forest. And over the course of, you know, a month or so, I logged out all the trees I needed uh, to build this cabin. And I, at that particular time, uh, I'd been obsessed with log cabins. So I typically get obsessed with things and then I like dig as deep as I can into that. And I just try to learn and learn and learn and learn. Uh, one of my, I get, you know, I'm kind of a jack of all trades, but I just, I'd like learning new, how to do new things. I get interested in things and I, I just want to learn how to do it. And, and the thing that's problematic is I don't stop doing the own things. I just, I keep doing all that too, but I just, it just sort of never stops and I'm, uh, I'm good with that. Um, but I started doing some, um, YouTube videos with that and, um, I just, you know, I was just kind of documenting sort of the thing that I was doing and, you know, I was recording it and just kind of doing basic stuff, taking photos, whatnot, just like a lot of people do with their phones and stuff today well at that point in time I um, I had a, a uh, sawmill I don't have any more I sold it a couple of years ago when I bought the boat because I didn't need it anymore um, but I had this wood miser sawmill and so you know I made this video I made a couple of videos and and I just sent it to wood miser and said hey you know I'm doing this thing you know, I don't know if you guys would be interested in that, but I kind of feature your your product in there. You know, no big deal. You know, it's kind of one of these sort of emails that you don't really expect to go anywhere. And I got an email back, and uh, they're like, "Hey, great, yeah, just you know, once you you know make something, you know, send us a link to it, and you know, we'll post it on our Facebook page." And I'm like, "Great!" And so, you know, that's kind of all it was. And so I made this video. Um, And I kind of forgot about it. Like I, I made kind of a, it was sort of fairly cool and philosophical video. Um, I got snowed in. So what was happening when I was building the cabin? Like as soon as I had a roof on it, I would camp out here. Um, like I didn't have heat. I didn't have anything. I would just pile a bunch of blankets on an air mattress, and I would just sleep out here on the weekends. That way, I didn't have to drive back and forth uh, to my other house. And um, but I got snowed in. And so I just like, oh, you know, screw it. I can't really do anything, but I can, you know, I can, I'll make, I'll shoot a video while I'm out here. And I took shot the video and I just took some, you know, other stuff that I'd shot. And, and I kind of made this sort of cool little video. It wasn't, you know, I didn't think it was that awesome, but it was, you know, it was solid. 
And uh, I sent it to him, sort of forgot about it. And uh, didn't really go back and look at it. I wasn't a YouTuber. It was just sort of a casual thing for my own account. And then I had this, my phone rang one day. This is my cell phone. And um, it was a, it was a uh, number from Iowa. And at that particular point in time, you know, my phone wasn't blowing up with, you know, a bunch of scam calls, you know, trying to, you know, ask me if I want to, you know, talk to them about my consolidating my student loans or whatever, you know, the scam of the week is. And there was this guy from Iowa and he was like, hey, I just want you to know that I took your advice. I quit my job my white collar job and now I'm working in construction framing houses so I can learn how to build my own log cabin and I just want to let you know that your video changed my life and I just sat there on the phone going what the hell's going on here and so I had this conversation with him because he had some questions and they're sort of basic logistical questions about building a cabin so you know I shared some knowledge that I had and said you know these are the things I dealt with these are some things you might want to consider. And um, we went on our way, you know, hung up the phone, never heard from the guy again. But after that phone call, I was like, what, what's going on? He saw my video. And this is probably about a month after I, you know, talked to Woodmiser. And, uh, and I went and looked at that video and it had like 20,000 views. Now, that's a lot of effing views, especially for, you know, 10 years ago. And I'm like, what is this? Um, and so it was a sort of touch of viral. And then I was watching it. It was getting like a thousand views a day. And it just kept going. It kept going. So I was like, screw this. I'm just going to keep making some more. And so I kept, you know, I made like three or four videos. And by the time it was over, I had well over a million views on YouTube. And... The, but the other part of that is like you know I'm, I'm I'm a nobody, and so I just left my cell phone number out there, and people started calling me. I started getting emails. Um, I made you know in the process, I made one of my best friends. He's in Australia, uh, who ended up flying up here and spending about a, you know a couple of weeks with me and helping you know helping me work on the cabin and actually helped me sell my sailboat to its home. Um, so all of this stuff happened over a YouTube video, and I'll be honest, I kind of freaked out a little bit because, like, I had people just sort of, like, saying, um, yeah, your, your videos are changing my life, and I was thinking, I don't need that kind of responsibility, um, and then, you know, some other, you know, I wasn't, I was monetized, so I was making actually a little bit of money from it. Um, that was the other thing. I went and checked my Google account, and I was, you know, Google owed me like a thousand bucks in um, revenue from the YouTube videos, and and then I was just like, holy shit, I can actually like do this. Um, now a lot of things have changed since then. Um, you know, it's it's way harder to get that many views, and you know, I kind of. I let it drop and sort of my fan base went away. I still have a lot of subscribers, but I don't know how much that actually means. Um, but, you know, I still throw some videos out there. They don't get nearly the views that they once did. Um, but it was kind of an, it was sort of eye-opening into this world. 
of mass communication and like um one sort of how messages can get out there these days and two like um do we have ethical responsibilities to that like if i say something in this microphone that goes out on the interweb hits some person in some other country and they make a conscious decision about something to do with their life do i have a moral responsibility to that um and i would argue that yeah you do you do have it uh which is probably if you want to if you want to see me rant and i'm and i'm desperately trying not to get political on this um but some of the dumbest and most reckless things i've ever heard get spouted off on cable news um i am a journalism professor and i absolutely despise cable news um sorry to say this because i'm gonna get just accused of being a libtard the left has its problems i'm not gonna argue that it's but the right is on a whole different plane. Fox News and and these others, they function. Their their actual news reporting is okay. They usually don't do a lot of of uh, original reporting. They typically rely on news wires, which we, we'll talk about that at some other point. Um, so they don't do their necessarily a lot of original reporting. But all their commentary guys, like they're not adhering to any journalistic ethics and believe it or not for all the people that you know want to talk about the radical left-wing enemy the people journal left-wing radical journalist actually if you get down to um a lot of your traditional media um they are following some pretty stringent code of conduct and you know ethics um but this is the world of the internet and we don't have time for nuance um so having a conversation with a friend of mine a lifetime friend of mine great guy uh and he's neck deep in politics um and he's you know and a republican you know and one of the things that i was just saying you know because we're talking about the world of you know covid right now and sort of all the messaging and i said the thing that makes covid so strange for us is that you can have this disease that actually just absolutely destroys the body of, of, of one person and the person who sleeps next to them in bed at night who by all accounts is similar it may hardly affect them at all and so there's this randomness that requires nuance to talk about but you can't talk about covid if you can't have nuance like it requires it to understand it and kind of understand where we are and the culture but we try to talk in absolutes in these days and we just absolutely f it up um so that's where we are so tonight I, I i've been sitting here i've been looking at some youtube videos i was watching the news i was just you know reading keeping up talking with some friends i was like you know what i'm just gonna i'm gonna sit down and do an impromptu uh podcast on media literacy and kind of uh communication culture um we'll dig some more into this i'll do another one it kind of follows up with this goes a little bit deeper 
but one, I want to just kind of talk about what communication is and sort of uh, where we are and kind of how we got there and all of this stuff. So uh, I want to play a song and then we'll jump into that. All right. All right. This is the Talking Heads, Once in a Lifetime. You 
admittedly have been a little bit nostalgic for uh, the music of my youth lately. Um, I think we all do that at some level, maybe. You know, everybody wants to talk about how the music of their youth was always the best. You know, nothing was better than the stuff I listened to. Um, you know, just what it is. You know, but get this thing going. Um, yeah, I remember my, technically it was my second, but it might as well count as my first, because I didn't have my first car very long. My very first car was a 1984 Ford Tempo with a diesel engine in it. That thing would do like 0 to 60 in like 10 minutes. Um, but the vehicle I got after that was a it was my grandfather's uh i got it after he died it was a 1977 el camino brown and tan like i remember specifically asking my parents way way before like because i knew like there was a chance i was going to get this thing and i thought if there's ever a vehicle that's going to keep me from dating it's that thing um and I got it and you know what I learned to kind of love it um I still have it it's not my yard I really it's one of those it's sitting under a tree that I need to move it out with four flat tires I drove it all the way through high school and then college didn't have air conditioning the air conditioning went out on my first day of, high, of my senior year of high school, just you know, and because it, it locked up at an intersection, and the vice principal was right behind me. We had to push it into a parking lot beside. But like two or three transmissions and a new engine and all, I don't. I spent way more money on that thing than it was ever actually worth. But it was mine, um, and we did so many crazy things in that. Um, I'm not sure the statute of limitations has run out on what we, you know, the things that I. Um, did in that vehicle but I got memories that's the best thing we can ask for I have memories good memories uh, so let's jump the track um, like I did in that El Camino more than one occasion um, get back on on uh, line to talk about communication what communication is one of those words we just sort of throw around a lot right people People always talk about that. They know. They know communication. And, and again, this is one of those things that has irritated the shit out of me from day one. Is in this world, everybody thinks they can do your job. Like everybody thinks they know what you do. You just play on a computer all day. That's all you do. You just use words. I don't know how to use words. I got Microsoft Word. I can do that. I got a, I got a camera. I'm a professional photographer. And I will tell you, this absolutely irritates the hell out of us uh, who actually know what we're doing. But, you know what? That's just, that's the world we live in. There's nothing I can do about it except just sort of, you know, deal with it. Um, you know, so I'm just going to endure it. I'm going to bitch a little bit about it, but I'm going to endure it. And so here we are. Uh, let's talk about communication. What actually is it? 
I mean, I guess this is one of those first things you should ask somebody if they're like, I know what you do. I know what the media does. The media. Tell me exactly what that is. What is the media? Well, if you're going to talk about the media, which we will in a minute, um, it's uh, we need to talk about communication. And communication is it's the process of sharing ideas and thoughts through... It's the, it's the process of sharing ideas, thoughts, and feelings in commonly understandable ways. And, this, and the commonly understandable way is an important part of that. It's uh, a lot of people, when they would when you talk about communication, they might just say, what's well, the process of sharing what you think? You know, this process of sharing stuff. But to do it correctly, uh, you have to do it in commonly understandable ways. You have to... You have to be able to share this stuff in a way that the person who is your audience or the people who are your audience are actually going to understand. They're going to relate to this thing. You're going to be able to strike some sort of chord with them. And so that's what we do. Um, the golden rule of communication is know thy audience. Uh, the second rule that's my rule is you reach people where they are and not where you want them to be. And I think this is where a lot of people screw up. Um, and especially when I've gone and done consulting for companies, like they, they have a very strong idea of what it is that they want to say. And they also typically have a very strong idea of how they want to say it. But the problem is the majority of the time they're actually just talking, they're, t they're preaching to the choir. They're trying to talk to themselves. And those aren't the people they really need to reach. Um, and we do this. People do this all the time, and this is, and they're like, I don't understand why people aren't getting what I'm saying, and it's because you're not, you're talking to yourself, you're not talking to them. Like you're you're talking in a way that relates to you, and what you really should be doing is talking in a way that re relates to them. So this is the the process, and when we think about commonly understandable ways. You know, you, if you want to get, you know, really blunt with it is if you try to talk to someone in English who only speaks Spanish, you're going to do a shitty job of communicating with them. Right. Because they don't understand what you're saying. Even if you do talk louder, it doesn't help. Um, so the way we need to think about this is think in the terms of a sender and a receiver. Um, think about. Like picture in your mind you're at a concert and there's there's just two people in the concert. There's one person on stage and there's one person in the audience. Or maybe let's let's just back that up. Let's, let's simplify this even more. There's just two people sitting in a room together. And they're sitting in chairs, you know, about six feet apart, um, because they're properly socially distancing. And they're talking to each other. They're both using words and sending them to each other so you have person A and person B person A says something to person B now person A is the sender person B is the receiver in that scenario if we were in a classroom right now I'd draw you a really cute cartoon but we're not so you're just going to have to work with me on this um, so when person A says something to person B, the question is, are they are they communicating? Well, truthfully, you don't know. Um, because if person B is just sitting there with a blank stare on their face, 
person A really, this is where we, I, we'll get into the nonverbal stuff, but they don't really know, are they actually hearing what I'm saying? Are they understanding what I'm saying? Um, so for communication to be actual communication, it's, it's something that's got to be reciprocal. It's got to be reciprocal in nature. And so it's got to bounce back. It's got to have what we would call feedback. Um, if you're going back to the sort of the concert thing, uh, feedback is, you know, a guy, everybody walks up and you hear that screeching sound in the microphone. It's, that's feedback because uh, sound goes in the microphone, goes through an amplifier, goes out the speaker. But the speaker's loud enough that the noise coming out of the speaker gets picked up by the microphone. And then it just gets sent back through and then amplified again. And it does it a million times in a second. And then suddenly it just turns into this horrific screeching sound, which you're all familiar with and is a trope in every movie when someone walks up to a microphone and tries to talk. Um, feedback. So for communication to be communication, it's got to be, you got to have feedback. So like in this scenario right now, I'm sitting in a room by myself. There's nobody around me. I'm just talking. It's technically not communication. I'm sending information back, but until like you guys comment, uh, tell me I suck, uh, ask a question, like until that process happens, I don't know that anything's actually been accomplished. Like we have technically not communicated. Um, so we want to communicate. So the other, the other thing is, is to add insult to injury we're also doing this thing it's called encoding and decoding because the words we use are really only just a portion of how we actually communicate with each with each other and this is um, when we talk especially in the context of like interpersonal communication which is is communication between people this is where it gets tricky and this is also where we start talking about different mediums like text messaging um, kind of suck actually because there's so much information that doesn't get conveyed um, we try to do that at least at some point this time through um, emojis and other things where we try to say hey I'm being sarcastic don't take me too seriously whatever it is um, and so we're obviously we're constantly encoding and decoding messages so person A and person B are sitting in a room uh, and let's just say let's for For the sake of argument, because I, er, almost every human being I know has been in this scenario. Let's say the person A and person B are a couple. Let's say it's a boyfriend and a girlfriend. Let's say they're sitting there quietly. No words are spoken, but the boyfriend notices that the girlfriend has a peculiar look on her face. It's not a look that I would say would be a happy look. And it's just there. She's not saying anything, but there's just this look. And so from a nonverbal perspective, she's communicating. And this is the point I would ask you to think about. What is the most dangerous four-letter word in the English language? The most dangerous four-letter word in the English language. And no, it's not love. Take a moment. Think about it. Well, the, the, the guy looks at his girlfriend and he says, Hey, are you okay? And she crosses her arms. 
Her head tilts slightly to the side. Her eyes narrow just a bit. And she says, I'm fine. Now, if you're a self-respecting human being who has any understanding of what's going on in this world, suddenly there was a chill that just went down your back. Because you understand exactly what just happened. And you know that this particular individual has absolutely no chance about whatever's coming next. Whether or not he knows the reason that um, she's fine or not, because we just know he's in trouble. And this is the weirdness about communication. Because for a human being to say, I'm fine, technically, that should mean everything is okay. Everything's good. We're good. I'm fine. It's good. But when you start doing shit, like crossing your arms, tilting your head, and you get this look on your face, and they're like, I'm fine. We all know damn well she's not fine. And so the question becomes sort of like, then why didn't you just say so? Like, if you're not okay, why are you not saying you're okay? These are mysteries of being a human being. But the reality is, she has encoded that message with so many different layers of nonverbal communication from her body language, and even, you know, to a degree, her tone of voice, that he is able to decode that information and think, I need to find an escape plan right now. I need to find a way to get out of whatever it is that I'm currently in because. This isn't going to end well. Now, to compound that, we also deal with this thing called noise. And we all can think of noise as actual noise. Like if I if I tried to go outside and record something, like when I'm on my boat, I, there was a lot of times I tried to, I wanted to record something. But like, I'm not kidding. Like the moment you bring something out and you want to record, somebody's going to crank up a jackhammer or... Some dude with loud exhaust is going to drive by and rev his engine. Like, that's just going to happen. So there's actual physical noise. But there's other this other kind of noise. This noise is, uh, I, would, I would consider it psychological noise. This is the noise that gets in the way of you hearing things like, because you're hungry and you really want lunch. Or you're really anxious about something. So whatever, something's going on in your life and your brain is over on that thing. And so you're really focused on that. Or the person with you has got some sort of thing that just throws you off. Maybe they've got a big piece of spinach in their teeth. Something. And they're trying to talk to you, but all you're doing is staring at that thing in their teeth. Like whatever this is. These things because no, become noise, and what these do is interrupt like the free flow of this communication. It creates a distraction, either a psychological distraction or an actual auditory distraction. And so we have to overcome those things. Um, the other thing is just like if you're like consider this right now, we're in the middle of a presidential election. Like one of the things that each candidate ha is desperately trying to do as far as their campaign is that like. How do I communicate a message to people who may not necessarily like me? So if you're Trump or Biden, 
your job right now is to try to get votes from the other side. And you're trying to get votes from people who may not necessarily care that much for you. So your job at that point is to reach them where they are. And you're thinking about like what kind of communicate, what communication strategy can I use to connect with that person so they'll relate to me? Because what typically happens is we have this sort of knee-jerk response is the moment I realize that you're not on my side because we're in this sort of very tribal scenario right now, the moment I know that you're not playing with my team, I want to just go ahead and shut you down. Like there's nothing that you can say that has any relevance to me. And and on top of that, I believe that you're probably lying to me. Like this is the this is what we do, right? And this is also one of the pieces of armor that we'll put up against, you know, on our own team, our own tribe. They're like, whatever you do, don't listen to those other people because they're going to lie to you. Think about that. Think about how many times a political party has insinuated that one somebody is lying to them to their people. Like I'm telling you the truth, but everyone else is lying. So from one standpoint, you're trying to get through that. From the other standpoint, you're trying to defend against it. And it takes about five minutes on Twitter or less and you see it work work itself out in, in uh, real time. So let's go back to that word, the media. You know, the media is to blame. So the media is sort of, that's a, a weird-ass thing to say. Um, the media is this thing, it really, media is the plural form of the word medium. We talked about this the other day on the other podcast. Um, a medium is just, a, it's a means of sending information. So a podcast is a medium. A radio station is a medium. They're similar, but they're different. Television, it's a medium. Newspaper, it's a medium. All these things um, are, they're just simple. They're mediums. So when you say media, you're really just saying the plural form of one of those. And so when people talk about the media in America today, really they're just talking, they're literally talking about thousands of individual um organizations from you know local radio stations to big network news agencies and everything in between and I'll give you a little bit of insight most of us don't talk to each other so when you're when you talk about great big media conspiracies yeah it's not happening like you can we can get into similarities of people who get into the business but as far as like collectively we're all getting together and and planning some something no, no. Mostly the local reporters are just trying to get their crap done by deadline at the end of the day and move on with their light and go out for, you know, hopefully to get free Wi-Fi at Starbucks and something to drink. Um, and that's about as far as it goes. We can get, we can get into other stuff later as far as um, more nefarious institutions that exist that are larger. But when you're talking about the average reporter in the average local town, no, no, they're just trying to get as much done as they can, and hopefully they're going to do something good. Because a lot of these guys, especially from like a journalistic standpoint, we we go to these, you know, we go to journalism school, and you, and you really have big dreams and big hopes, and like I'm going to win a Pulitzer someday. I'm going to write something that's really going to change the world, and then you realize you're sort of covering some sort of local bullshit story that you just don't care about. But you know, that's the job. Um, 
you know, and sometimes you don't get to spend as much time on the stuff that you want to do, and you have to spend too much time on the stuff you don't want to do. And, you know, there we are. That's just where it is. Um, so when we moved to, though, from, like, the, you know, the local radio station, the local newspaper, local TV station, whatever, but, you know, you get into something larger, something that maybe have, like, a statewide appeal, or even, I guess, you know, context of the web, we're, mo we're moving into what we'd call mass media, mass communication. You know, we're not just one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. Uh, and this is the process of sharing shared meaning between the mass media and their audiences. Now, this is the world, especially like the, the what we call the greatest generation and the baby boomers. These are, This is the world that they grew up in as far as newspapers and broadcast news. Um, both of those groups read the newspapers. Both of them watched, you know, Walter Cronkite as far as, you know, getting their news. This was mass communication. But when they were reading the paper or watching the national news, they weren't necessarily able to respond to the person giving them that information. Um, what did happen, though, is kind of there was the sort of unified voice of information that was getting out to everyone. Uh, that, that's one of the primary differences between that period of media and this one. Um, mostly, if you watch the three big news, uh, the broadcast um, networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, they primarily, you know, they were they told the news as straight as they could, and that was that was a point of pride for these guys. And the same with a lot of the newspapers. Um, you know, they didn't. The point of a nightly anchor is they don't want you to know. The, whatever their political persuasion is. They don't want you to know if they're a Democrat or Republican. Um, that all changed when cable came around. And again, that goes back to for why I despise cable, but that's a thing for another day. Um, but the reality is communication has a profound impact on our lives. This is one of the things that we talked about the other day. Is like we're really good at it. We've, we've been studying the art and science of communication for thousands of years. And at least according to um, James Carey, who's a, a theorist in, in the 70s, he's like, communication is a symbolic process where reality is produced, maintained, repaired, and transformed. Now, I want you to think about that. Let me say that again. Communication is a symbolic process where reality is produced, maintained, repaired, and transformed. One more time. Had to take a drink there. Communication is a symbolic process whereby reality is produced. Think about the world in which we live in right now. So you think about people who, who pay attention to a particular brand of media, where it's right wing, left wing, batshit crazy wing, whatever wing it is. Um, Those people, and you sort of ask yourself, do we do we live in the same world? And one of the things with the communication stuff, and we and we'll talk about, like, um, echo chambers, is where you just sort of get in this world where everybody's repeating the same thing you are. Like you you don't get into a world where you get conflicting voices. 
in that world where if you're pursu- if you're consuming a particular type of media, especially if it's got a particular sort of slant, that world becomes your reality. And I'm serious here. Like, don't don't scoff that off real quick. Like, just don't don't just sort of discount that and say, eh, you're full of shit, whatever. That's just you know, crazy talk. Your the the communication that you are consuming and you're engaging in produces your reality. It also maintains that reality. It also repairs and transforms it. If and then so now think about that. Think about when you see on the news or whatever you happen to watch, whether you call it news or not. Think about the like the typical right wing versus left wing um Advocate. We'll just call them advocates. I'm not going to say one's right or wrong. What, what is abundantly clear is these people are true believers in whatever it is that they think they're they're serve whatever cause it is they think they're serving. Um, and what's also clear is they're only getting one side of the story, and that's typically by design. And so you end up with people that live side by side. You know, you literally live next door to somebody and they view the world in a entirely different lens than you do. And we can get in all kinds of different different um, ways that that can manifest itself. But when they're looking out at their window and looking at the world, they're seeing a different world than you do. And with our our modern communication is in the way that messaging is tailor made for us, the stuff that gets sent to your phone is not the same that gets sent to your neighbor's phone. Um, algorithms and artificial intelligence are better at knowing what we want than we than we are. And the problem with always getting what you want is you don't always get what you need. Um, but they reward the things that we want, and that's what we get, and that creates our own particular reality. And as a result of that, our communication will define our culture. And our culture is the learned behavior of members of a given social group. It's the, the culture is the behavior of our tribe. Culture is a thing that we learn. We're not born with it. It's a thing that we learn and we have these little concentric circles of our own tribe and they get further and further out. And at least in the world that we live in now, you know, the closer someone is to the center of that circle, the closer they are to us. Um, at least in, when we're talking about tribalism, the further they get away from our circle, the more likely we are to look at them with a level of suspicion. And so this is one of the sort of the interesting things that I found about right now. It's like, I have people I know. I will sit, I'll drink a beer with, I'll laugh and have a good time with and talk. And we are on a personal, sitting in the same room together, have a great time. And then I can see the stuff that they will post online. And we have absolutely nothing in common in there. Like, it, it, it's, it's it, in many cases, I just it's disheartening. Um, and I'm like, how is this, how is this person someone I like? And then from that standpoint, it sort of becomes, but the reality is I do like them. 
and so we start to have to kind of figure out where does where is our tribe and where is our own dissonance coming from within all that when all that stuff. Um, turns out we have different tribes, and sometimes those tribes vary. We can have somebody that's in our tribe as long as we're sitting in the same room and they're in the opposing tribe if they're you know sitting in a chat room somewhere or on social media, which is kind of a it's screwed up. It's kind of screwed up. And so, but kind of the other part of that is how does our culture define our behavior? Think about that. How does our culture define and you know, regulate our behavior? What is it that we do, you know, that we don't even think about? Like, how far apart do you stand? Like, when you're talking to somebody, like, what are your social norms? You know, did you grow up in the South? Are you one of those people who say, yes, ma'am? No, ma'am. Are you somebody who opens doors for other people? Do you, inter- do you interject when they're, the, or do you, you know, when they're having, when they're talking, or do you wait till they're finished? Do you give hugs? Do you not give hugs? You know, what kind of stuff do you do? Here's, here's a good one for guys. Guys, I want you to do this. If find somebody you know that you trust, someone. It's more fun if you have a complete, two complete strangers do this and you've got somebody who can maintain order. This is what I would normally do in class. I would just take two random guys out of the out of the, out of the classroom. And I would have them stand on opposite sides of the room. And then face each other. No big deal. They're just on the opposite side of the rooms. They're facing each other. And then I'll tell them to do something, and this is the moment you can immediately see things get awkward. I say, I want you two to make eye contact and not break eye contact. And so they do it, and things start to get awkward really fast. And so they sit, and you can start seeing you can start seeing them like nervous ticks start kicking they get a little fidgety they don't want to hold the thing is they do not want to maintain eye contact so and as the instigator of this nonsense i have to be there and like hey you're going to do this i don't really give a shit if you don't want to you're going to do it i'm the professor and it's a dictatorship and you're just going to do it so they do it and we sit there and they watch and then i'm and then once they they finally sort of settle in okay we're okay with this i was like all right now i want you to take two steps forward toward each other I need you to close the gap. And the class usually starts giggling a little bit because everybody feels the tension and nobody really knows what to do with it. And, you know, and and it's just glorious to watch all this awkwardness. And then there's this progression where they get, I just make them get closer and closer and closer. And then finally, I'm just like, I need you to touch the tips of your toes together and maintain eye contact at the same time. And it's really interesting to see how far people can bend backwards while their toes are touching. Like it's a, how far can you lean back and still stay upright? And, um, it's, I'll be honest. It's for me personally, it's hilarious. Um, Anybody who's going to be a teacher or a, especially in a college level, there's, you've got to have just a certain level of sadism, uh, built into you to enjoy that. Um, but there it is. And that's what we do. And, uh, 
they can't like they're it's it's next to impossible at that point to for them to maintain eye contact and so we sit there finally let them off the hook and it's just this like huge sigh of relief you can feel the relief in the room from the anxiety that's finally broken and i'm like so why do you guys just ask him like why are you so uncomfortable like you don't that guy's not a threat to you right there's like there's no problem i'm not asking you to do anything other than just look at each other and it's usually hard to explain. They just, they know it's uncomfortable, but it's hard to articulate exactly why. And the reason why is at least in Western culture. So we talk about, you know, American culture. Uh, and you could probably even get into some little primates. Um, Cause that's what we are. Is there's only two reasons, two males in our culture or two people even, it doesn't have to be males, two people, there's only two reasons that two people will stand in that close proximity and maintain eye con con contact. And those two things are either aggression or intimacy. You know, you can just like think about two guys who want to fight and they're like bumping chest and they're each trying to swell up and peacock and act like they're the baddest dude on the block because they're both scared shitless because they don't actually want to fight. Like this is the thing that we do right now. If you put people in that scenario where they don't actually want to fight, but you make them go through the, the motions, then well, you're creating this disconnect that creates a lot of tension and a lot of anxiety because the 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 nonverbal stuff that you're sending out there because of your no social norms you don't even think about this. this is all subconscious stuff you're not thinking about this stuff like I can only stand this far apart and I can only make eye contact with this person in short bursts otherwise I'm going to be communicating this other message we don't do any of that we just do our thing uh, but when we break it, um, things get awkward really quick, and people, you know, and it's open for misinterpretation. Uh, this is why, you know, like drunk guys might get in a fight in a bar. One guy stares just a little too long, and next thing you know, this is where you know problems start. So the question is like, who defines the culture? Um, you know, the mainstream culture in any society is the one that's adopted by the majority of the people. You can have subcultures, obviously, uh, but you, you typically have a predominant culture that's existing in a certain area, and that can vary uh, slightly over geography. So, you know, the Southern culture, you know, is different than New England culture, which is different than, you know, Western U.S. culture, which is different from... You know, Asian culture, which is different from European culture, you know, which is different from African culture. They're all different. Um, we all have our, our own different things, the way we do stuff. But, you know, it's just the way it is. Um, sort of the, the next question, I'm really going to have to practice the ums. Or at least practice not saying the ums. Now, how do you find out what a culture's beliefs are? How do you find out what the value of a culture is? What are their values and beliefs? This goes back to communication because you can understand the values and beliefs of a culture based off of the stories that 
culture tells. Um, in our modern era, think of the books and the movies that are popular. Think of the easiest way to, to talk about this is think about like the horror genre. Like, what is a cult, what is a particular culture fear? Go back in the 1950s, 60s. You had this rise of, and a lot, especially like out of Japan and other places, you had like the rise of these sort of monster, like Godzilla style movies. And a lot of these monsters were created as a result of radiation. So that was the origin story. So, you know, I had. Obviously, we had the atomic bomb was new, and Japan felt it harder than anyone ever. And so, in the the side effects of that radiation was rippling through and creating fear. Uh, in the past, you know, ten years or so, you had a rise of zombie films. So the question is, why would why would we pick zombie films? Well, if you go back to the early zombie films, they were always like the rise of the living dead sort of thing. These are actually human beings that had died and had come back to life. Well, the newer ones, uh, with you know the last couple of decades at least, most of those zombie films had nothing. The characters, the zombies hadn't died; they caught a virus. They're the result of a pandemic. Gosh, this seems familiar. Um, apparently, is the idea in in some cases there were films where human beings were playing around with some sort of medicine. They were playing God, as they would say, um, messing with the human genome just a little too much. That created something, or a virus got loose, or something happened that created a disease that created zombies. It was a thing that we feared is this idea of a pandemic of zombies spreading. Apparently that's a thing we fear. And that's a thing that in a thousand years from now somebody can come back and look at the stories that we're telling. You know, we may we may embrace them now and we may laugh at, you know, zombie land. But the prevalence of those kind of films will will inform a future culture of like, oh, this was a thing that these people were afraid of. And this is, you know, and this they would tell stories about that. It's sort of a way to help them deal with it. And so mass communication has become a primary forum for the debate about our culture. In this in this world, it can take all kinds of forms. It can take the form of social media it could take the form of film take the phone the form of kind of more traditional media but this is where we talk about this i would say probably right now the number one place is twitter that we talk about and debate our culture who's right who's wrong what are ideals that we we want to adhere to what are ideals that we want to reject and we make a lot of arguments and you know for good or for bad you know some are better at making those arguments than they're they are, um, and some are not so good at it. Some are very charismatic, but they make really bad arguments. And that's one of the problems that we're dealing with right now, is we have some really charismatic people who are not very good with logic, and 
they create an audience of people who aren't very good about picking up on that logic. And so to combat that, one of the things that we need is something we would just simply call media literacy. It's the ability, the media literacy is the ability to comprehend, interpret it, and use all these different forms of what we'd call mediated communication. Media communication, go back to the word medium. It's like I'm using a device or some sort of forum to talk to you. And so we have to we have to be informed consumers of that medium. Um, because we get what we ask for. At least, you know, when I started out in the broadcast me uh, journalism world, it was the late 90s. There was a lot, like the big thing that everybody was afraid of is gang warfare, uh, Crips and the Bloods in L.A. You know, I was working in Little Rock at the time in Ar Little Rock, Arkansas, and HBO had just recently come out with a documentary, Gang Banging in Little Rock, and it was pretty violent. And I, I am not lying to you that I worked for a station at that point in time that really adhered to the if it bleeds, it leads um, mantra uh, and when I would work like the overnight you know weekend photographer gig you know my instructions were to like listen to the police scanner listen for things like injury accidents anything that might have someone hurt more specifically someone bleeding and if I could find like a homicide which were way too common and if I could get a body bag all the better. That was my job. I didn't like that job very much. I'll be honest. I didn't get it. I didn't get into journalism to start chasing police cars. Um. So, but we get what we ask for, and the problem is in our modern media environment that the algorithms are set up to give exactly what we ask for, and they won't even worry about asking, you know, giving us what we might particularly need. So, elements of media literacy, things that you might want to just put in your hat and think about. It's Media literacy is the, the critical thinking skills that's going to give you the ability to make independent judgments about the media content that you're consuming. It's going to allow you to make independent judgments. Now, the thing about that is... People like to make a lot of judgments, but they like to mostly make judgments about the other media, not the media that they listen to or they watch. They're, you know, they're confident that the stuff that they like is perfect. It's the other people's stuff that's problematic. You know, it's always CNN, CNN, or it's always Fox. It's always the other. Whoever, depending on who you're talking to, it's always the other. My stuff is perfect. My stuff is without fault. You know, they may have a thing every now and then, but, you know, I really believe that they're trying to tell me the truth. Maybe. Um, one of the other things you need to know is understanding of the process and the influencers behind mass communication. Um, you, one of the first things that you need to understand about commercial media is a for-profit business. They aren't. You may have journalists who are working who are, are strong in their ideals and truly believe in the things that, they, that they're telling you, but you may have a company behind them that's primarily looking for clicks and likes and views and ratings and all of these other things and papers sold. 
because they want to sell advertising and the more people that they can get looking at their thing the more money they can get on advertising and the better they are at developing a certain type of audience that they can advertise more effectively to again the more that they can raise um, the price of their advertising everybody makes money so you really need to have an understanding of kind of like what's going on behind it. You need to understand not just what you're getting at face value, but what are, what's the machine working behind, um, behind that. And the other thing is you need to have an awareness of the impact that this media has got on not just you, but media at large. Uh, one of the hard things for me right now is the fact that I understand what's going on and I can see it happening in real time. Like, I know a lot of journalists that drink a lot already. Their alcohol consumption has gone up because there's just nothing. They, they just have to, it's like they're watching a train wreck in slow motion and there's nothing they can do about it. Um, but from a consumer standpoint, you really need to start kind of looking to see well, what kind of impact media has. Like, how, how is the media that you consume affecting your personal life? And if you're just really flippant and say, it doesn't affect me at all, I'm going to go ahead and call bullshit on you because there's a reason you drive the vehicle that you drive. There's a reason you have the shoes that you have. There's a reason that you see the things that you see. Media affects you whether you realize it or not. It affects me and I even know what's going on. So God only knows what it's doing to people who don't have a clue what's going on. So and it's one of the most important things you can do is just start paying attention to like, what decisions am I making? What views am I holding? Primar primarily based on the media that I'm consuming. And then you need to, if you've got that, you start having to ask yourself questions like why you're seeing a particular message and what's the motivation behind it. Like why are they sending me this stuff? Like Facebook kind of got a little weird recently with me. Um, and you can, with social media, I know with Facebook, you can look to kind of see why they're sending you the ads that they're sending you. But there was this period of time recently in the last few weeks that I started getting these ads for, um, Kevlar vests and private jets. Like, like I know pilots. I have had conversations with pilots, so I hang out with some some of the boat people I know are also pilots. So I'm in the world of these people. I also used to be a cop, and I'm also a teacher, so I can see where Kevlar can come into that. But it was one of those is like, do you think I'm a do Do you think I work for the CIA? Am I suddenly James Bond? I don't know about that. I don't know what it is you think that I'm doing, but I'm willing to consider it. Um, so start asking yourself why you're seeing a particular message. Why are you getting a particular kind of ad? And, and also start understanding that, you know, the person next to you is probably getting something different. And you also need to kind of think about the idea that the media content as a text that provides insight to your culture and your life. Like think about the things that you and your friends are consuming from a media standpoint. And then start thinking about not only how it affects you personally, but how does it affect you all collectively? What are your conversations that are emulating from, that are, are, are coming out of um, the sort of messaging you're getting? Because chances are, you know, 
I'm from the rural south, so you got a bunch of good old boys that drive pickup trucks. You know, we're good old, you know, we're typically, they're fairly typically sort of Republican-minded, libertarian-ish. Um, whatever happens to be, you know, you grew up on a farm, you do whatever, you just, you grow up in that world. You know, there's a good chance that you're all getting a very similar sort of messaging that's directed specifically for you for very specific reasons. And then you start have to ask yourself sort of like, why, why are they choosing to send this message to me? Now, the other thing about that is if you've ever taken a film class where you actually start to dissect films, like getting into like the nuts and bolts of like um, themes of film, scripts, editing, all of the things that go into create a film one of the things that can happen to that is you start dissecting everything you see and you stop to enjoy it. You stop enjoying it because you're always just picking it apart. Um, one of the good, if you're going to be a, if you're going to be media literate, like there's a point that you also need to be able to turn the stuff off. Like you're like, I'm just gonna sit here and enjoy the Avengers tonight and not read too much into it. Um, going back to the other thing I could, I could, I could tell you, you know, going back to the stories we tell ourselves as a culture, there's probably a reason there's been a rise in superhero movies lately. I'm not going to tell you why, but I'll let you just sort of think about that one. Why Why is it, do you think, that things like superheroes, Avengers, have become so popular? I mean, it's good storytelling. It's good filmmaking. It's, it's exciting. But why that storyline? Also, you know, if you're going to do this, especially if you're going to do this for a living, you know, not only learn how to, like, understand good stories, but also learn how to tell them yourself. That's a good thing. Learn how to, you know, especially if you're a parent, learn how to tell your kid good stories. And then, I guess, there's also this, what I was talking about at the very beginning, there's this sort of ethical and moral understanding, you know, or moral obligation that you have if you're a media practitioner. Like, I feel... A deep sense of responsibility to give you good information part of that is you know what I do for a living um, I don't want to lie to you no matter who says what uh, and I would say that most journalists don't want to lie to you partially because our reputation is on the line uh, we may also though have to be this point that we're not we're not gonna sugarcoat stuff um, but that's just sort of the world that we live in right now. Uh, but we have to be ethical and moral. You know, we have to have these ethical and moral under obligations as media practitioners to tell people, um, get into truth. Truth's, a, truth's something kind of tricky. We'll get into that, though. Um, a few other things. If you're going to go into this world... Like, you need to make some effort to, to understand content um, and to pay attention to, to the noise. Like, again, if you're just talking about communicating, if you're sitting at work, talking to a customer who's a little cranky, I don't know, for those who may work in, where you deal with the general public and you've got a cranky customer, try to learn how to filter out the noise. Try to learn how to communicate with someone who may be highly emotional and by highly emotional, I mean cranky. 
and how you can take that information and not amplify that information that or that attitude filter out that noise and then kind of more consider like what's my ultimate objective with all this also and this is probably one of the most important things and this is one of the things that almost no one does is you have to have a, a, a strong respect for um, the power of, of the media messages on you and this is what we call this thing we have this thing called the third person effect and the third person effect essentially says you know what I, I get that media can really impact and influence people like it can influence average people the media can really change the way an average person thinks the problem is most of us don't consider ourselves average you think ah, you know what I know that I know that that guy over there is probably influenced but I'm not I'm not influenced by this stuff you are you definitely are like I said I do this for a living and I know good and well that I am and if I'm self-aware of it and it affects me, then no good and well that the person has never thought about this for a moment in their life is definitely guilty. Um, for your social media folks, the ability to distinguish emotional from reasoned reactions and responding to content and act accordingly. I don't know how many times I've gotten pissed off. I've made a, made a post, you know, and you do everything you can to make sure it right. And the first thing somebody comes out and just immediately tells you that you're biased you're like do you have any idea how much effort and work i put into the, this thing to get it right and like you don't even take two seconds before you're accusing me of some sort of bias and the gut reaction is just to want to like scream at them in whatever indignant social media message you can or, you know, but learn how to be make reasoned response. Emotion, you're just if you're amplifying emotion. Um, I mean, this is impersonal too. If somebody's angry with you in person, and you're reflecting and amplifying that anger, you're just gonna you're creating a snowball effect of anger. What you want to be able to do is de-escalate those moments. Don't give them the satisfaction of making you mad. Um, in fact, if they're making you mad, you're gonna mess up. In fact, for some of them, the smart ones, if they're making you mad, then they're doing exactly what they're trying to do. So work really hard not to have an emotional response to something. And um, finally, just have higher expectations for the stuff you consume. Like, I don't care if you are whatever your persuasion is as far as from a political standpoint or whatever it is that you think you want. You should hold your primary source to the highest standard. Hold them to a standard much higher, equally as high as you would hold anything else. Um, just simply because you should. Like, this is... I mean, you should hold everything... Just hold it up. Hold them up to. I don't care if you love Fox News. Hold Fox News to a high standard. If you love CNN, hold CNN to a high standard. If you love the New York Times, hold them 
to a high standard and be chronically disappointed if they fail you. Because if more people did that, I promise you, promise you, we'd be better off. So, with that said, we'll take us out with... We deserve a happy ending. We deserve a happy ending from the um, Reverend Peyton and his big damn band. Mm-hmm.